These days, autistic people and their families are coming up with new ways to understand autism's unique gifts and challenges. To these advocates, that means making the environment more inclusive for people with different minds and bodies. So to understand what disability justice means, to incorporate that into our work means not treating our lives or our communities as single issue. It means recognizing the whole humanity of every person. That's Lydia Xe Brown, an autistic activist, organizer, and lawyer. They spoke at the Colorado Trust, an organization that focuses on health equity. It's not merely about checking the boxes. Do you have the sign language interpreter? Do you have the ramp? It's about making sure that individuals in your communities and in your work actually feel welcome without having to check pieces of themselves at the door. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today we talk to autistic adults, plus parents and educators of autistic young people about how they're building a more accessible world. Later in the show, how designing classrooms for autistic students can benefit all students, and how children's museums can include autistic patrons in their exhibits. But first, when she noted that her young daughter had delayed speech and dramatic meltdowns, Professor Jen Malia went looking for answers. She discovered her daughter was autistic, but she also discovered something else, that she was also autistic. Now she's written a children's book that stars an autistic girl. Jen, you have a book coming out next year. The title is Too Sticky, Sensory Issues with Autism. Why too sticky? Well, with my own experience as a child, I had some sensory issues, and too sticky was just um, something that I think a lot of kids that are um, autistic have trouble with, both myself and my daughter. We have trouble, you know, touching sticky things and want to wash our hands constantly. So I thought that that would be a good um, sensory issue to write about for children. The book is loosely based on your own experience. Yes, I didn't know I was autistic when I was a child. I wasn't diagnosed until I was an adult. But when I was looking for children's books for both myself and my kids, I had a lot of trouble finding books that were representing autistic characters in a way that was positive. So that was one of the reasons that I set out to write a book. What do you now realize about the young you that had symptoms of autism? Well, when I was younger, um, I mean, in my generation, now I'm 43, but in my generation, unless you had a severe case of autism, you know, normally you would not have been diagnosed. So at that time, I was very shy as a child. Um, I had difficulty communicating. I'd often sit in classrooms um, being completely silent and not interacting much unless I was really comfortable, you know, with, you know, a couple of friends that I had. But um, for the most part, you know, growing up, I knew that there was something wrong, but I didn't know what it was. And I knew that I had these sensory issues. I had trouble walking on like hardwood or tile floors and just a lot of different sensory issues and difficulty communicating. Also, as a child, I used to line up all of my toys, not even realizing that that alone could be uh, an autistic trait, but now that I know <laughs> that that's something that's pretty common, um, you know, what I did was I actually learned how to play with toys from my, I had a, a brother growing up, and he taught me how to play with his Star Wars toys. That's how I learned how to play. How can we understand it better? How was what you experienced, not tidiness, 
um, fastidiousness and shyness. Right. Um, I think that there's not really a look to autism. A lot of people have a sort of stereotypical view of what autism is. And I have to admit that until I got diagnosed, which was about three years ago, I myself had a very stereotypical view of autism. It was what I saw on Rain Man. You know, that's that's what I had a vision of um, someone that's, you know, very isolated and doesn't really communicate much with the outer world. And, and also statistically, for every four boys that are diagnosed, only one girl is diagnosed autism presents differently in females. And so now there are a lot of girls and women being diagnosed that weren't or wouldn't have been, you know, in the past. What prompted you to have a diagnosis of autism so late in your life? At the time, I was looking to figure out what was going on with my daughter. Um, I have three kids, and my second child, when she was two years old, I noticed there was a lot of behavior issues, but also, you know, these sensory issues. She had a language delay. But when I would take her to doctors to try to figure out what was going on, I was constantly told that she had just a language delay. And I knew there was a lot more to that. So what I started doing is um, I researched you know, being a, a PhD, you know, was one thing I was good at was research. So I spent <laughs> a lot of time, you know, reading hundreds of medical articles. It's not my field, but I knew that I needed to do that to figure out what was going on. And so what I discovered was that, you know, the only thing that kept coming up with all the things that I noticed that was going on with her was, was autism spectrum disorder. And then I realized, you know, probably a couple hundred hours more of research that, well, I was on the spectrum too. Huh. What did you see in your two-year-old that went beyond what you thought was language delay? Well, we would have these, um, she had a lot of episodes, what are a lot of people you know, refer to as autistic meltdowns, where she would be crying and kicking and screaming. And I could tell that there was a lot more going on than just a tantrum. So the main thing that I think is different with a tantrum, which she was two years old at the time, which is pretty common for a two-year-old, mm -hmm. and a meltdown is that it was a lot more severe. And it wasn't the type of thing where, you know, if she, she wanted something and if you gave her that, let's say she asked for a toy, you know, a two-year-old can have a, a tantrum if you take that toy away. But with an autistic meltdown, even if you give the toy back, there's going to be a continuation of this kind of emotional breakdown, a sort of sensory overload, because at that point, if I gave my daughter the toy back, it would be too late because she can't control or, you know, emotionally regulate. So your forthcoming children's book, Too Sticky, Sensory Issues with Autism, in that you're trying to help children, parents, educators really understand autism better. Is that right? Yes. Um, I would say that the main purpose that I have or main goal that I have with this book is not only to raise autism awareness, but also acceptance. And I think that second part is really important because I, for one, consider autism part of my identity. And so I, I like to refer to myself as an autistic woman, autistic mother, not just a person with autism, which is... Um, person first language is actually preferred by the medical community, but a lot of the autistic community prefer identity first language because we can't separate the autism from who we are. Um, and I, you know, my experiences are all through an autistic lens. So every experience that I've ever had has been based on my own experiences with, you know, having autism. And so when I think about 
one of the goals that I have for writing the book, it's specifically is to write a book for the autistic community, for autistic children who want to see some part of themselves in the book and can identify with the character who's going about her everyday life, which is what exactly what we need to do every day. Are there many other children's books about autistic children? There are some other um, children's picture books that are written um, by neurotypical authors, but there are very few that are written from the perspective of someone, you know, who, who is living with autism. You know, you must have so many people come up to you through all your writing in the, in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Women's Day. You must have so many people saying, thank you. I so relate both for myself and my children. Yeah, in fact, I have a lot of readers that reach out to me. Um, they, you know, they'll message me on my Facebook page and tell me that they were able to get diagnosed or they were able to get their, you know, sons or daughters diagnosed. I even had someone that I went to school with in middle school who reached out to me and he just happened to come across an article he had read, um, and this was recently, and um, he sought his, his own diagnosis. It was something that, you know, for him, he had you know, had gone through therapy as a child, but also was not diagnosed. And then he's looking into uh, potentially getting his uh, daughter screened as well. What advice would you have for parents and children to recognize these character traits in children and colleagues and account for them, be more understanding and accepting? Yeah, I think that a lot of times with, you know, especially if, you know, my, my kids are more on the mild part of the spectrum, and I am as well, and I think a lot of times the reaction that I get when I, you know, mention that either, you know, myself or my kids are on the autism spectrum, it's something like, well, you seem to be doing fine, like you have, you know, you're a professor, and, um, mm -hmm. you know, your kids are, you know, interacting really well with other kids here at the school, and, uh, and a lot of times that's great you know, that we are able to do all of these things, of course, but sometimes, you know, it kind of sort of pushes to the side the fact that we are, you know, having a lot of challenges that we, that we have to deal with and to kind of, you know, dismiss it as well. You know, sometimes I'll hear things like, well, everybody is a little autistic, aren't they? You know, a lot of people who have PhDs and are studying intently and have hyper-focused interests <laughs> and things like that. And that is true. Sometimes there are definitely some people that are on the spectrum that are getting PhDs that, you know, may or may not want to pursue a diagnosis or just have autistic traits. But from the perspective of someone like myself, who's diagnosed and does have significant challenges, and my kids do as well, um, acknowledging that, you know, we are different, we do need accommodation sometimes. And that even if, you know, if we look like we're doing just fine on the outside, sometimes there's things that are, you know, that we're holding in on the inside that are really difficult for us. People are afraid to assume a work colleague or a child has autism. Yeah, I think that's true that there's um, still a lot of stigma about, you know, a lot of people I know don't actually want their, you know, writers who don't want to, um, you know, identify that their children are autistic if they're writing about them. Um, I, I have treated it with my own family. I've been very open, of course, you know, writing articles about it. And also, you know, all of my colleagues, um, they know because, I mean, I go to readings and I read about being autistic. Um, but I've, I've treated it as something that I'm proud of. And 
I know that, um, you know, everybody has their own preferences as to whether or not they want to be openly autistic. But for me, as I said, it's part of my identity. And I don't ever want my children to feel ashamed of being autistic. I want them to also be proud. Well, Jen Malia, thank you for sharing your insights on autism on With Good Reason. Thank you so much for having me. Jen Malia is a professor of English at Norfolk State University. Her children's book, Too Sticky, Sensory Issues with Autism, will come out in the spring of 2020. Coming up next, how museums can design autism-accessible spaces. Jackie Spanauer is a museum professional and the mother of an autistic son. Now she's working on a research project about how museums can improve accessibility for autistic children. Jackie, you recently had a bad experience taking your three-year-old son to a children's museum. What happened? I did, actually. So my three-year-old is on the autism spectrum, and my husband and I thought that the best place to take him would be somewhere already suited for children. So we decided to take him to a local children's museum, and there were a number of barriers there that we weren't expecting. Children who have autism tend to dart. They're a flight risk. And so when you go into a space that doesn't have areas that are blocked off or that don't have doorways, then your child is really free to run and dart and roam everywhere. And as a parent, you end up literally chasing them throughout the facility, and then they're not really learning anything or getting much from that experience other than you getting a 30-minute workout. Another issue that we had is they have this wonderful bubble room that I can remember going to as a child, and I knew my son loved bubbles and would love that room. And unfortunately, children with autism tend to zone in on one particular thing that they are fixated on. And there was this large place where they had the bubble liquid and they had multiple wands in that particular area. And each wand had a different color and had different shapes that it made. So the first time that we went in, my son zoned in on this particular wand. And that's the only one that he wanted to play with. And he had a great time. But then when we left that area and we came back, there was another child playing with that wand. And so you can imagine the meltdown that ensued because all of those wands were different. And he wanted the pink one with the triangles instead of the yellow one with the circles. So what ended up happening is we just had to remove him from that situation. And we ended up taking him to a part of the facility that was actually designated for infants. So he was a little old for it, but that particular area had a door. So we ended up staying there in a spot that really wasn't great for his learning and didn't allow him to use the space wisely. So we were very disappointed with the experience. I don't think that it accommodates children on the spectrum very well, that particular facility. And to be honest, I'm not really sure if we'll go back. That's so interesting. A place where you had gone and loved as a child did not work for your own child. Yeah. What's another example of something kind of common in children's spaces that doesn't work for a lot of kids on the autism spectrum? Sure. When I went to the Children's Museum, once again, there was a section that had these tubes that children could climb into, which, of course, we all associate with childhood. We remember playing in those tubes at a McDonald's or some other place as a child. And it's not a great place for your child with autism because a lot of children on the spectrum do not either know their names or they are unable to communicate when they get stuck. And so my child was climbing in these tubes and getting in the very back of them. And I, as an adult, would have had a very difficult time trying to get to him if I needed to. 
So those, although they work well for neurotypical children, children with autism, it's it's a little bit more difficult. You really have to think about safety with children with autism, and you have to make sure that you're thinking about how parents can have easy access and line of vision with their child at all times. And I was surprised that we had that kind of issue again at a children's museum where you would think these accommodations were already in place. I can see how museums could get it wrong and never realize it. There are some museums that are working really hard to make accommodations at their facilities to ensure that children on the spectrum are able to come and be comfortable. There's been some museums that I've been to that have started creating um, spaces with different types of seating for like a children's reading group or places when they're doing crafts. They're more mindful of the fact that children with autism who are younger tend to explore with their mouths and they'll eat everything. (laughs) So they have bigger beads or they have uh, pipe cleaners because they're better for dexterity as opposed to having a piece of string that you have to actually tie a knot. So there are some facilities that are trying to incorporate those things and are getting them done well. But I personally have not visited a children's museum that I feel like is really doing it well. Name one that you've come across that was doing it the best you've seen so far. So I've been writing a book called Museums and Millennials, and as part of that research, I interviewed someone from the Mosaic Templars Cultural Center. They are a relatively new museum that's out in Arkansas, and they have a variety of families, specifically African-American families. They're an African-American cultural center that are coming to their facility almost daily, and they are serving them very well. And they realized that they had a lot of children that were coming that were on the spectrum and that they needed to make changes so that those families felt comfortable. So they are the ones that I've personally talked to that are really just doing wonderful. They're doing trainings constantly with their staff. But they're also recognizing that children with autism have difficulty staying on task and they have difficulty following directions. So when they're having an event or something, they actually use colored duct tape and they put it on the ground to tell the child, follow the yellow duct tape, and then they'll end up at a stop sign and then they'll do an activity. And then at that point, they'll say, please follow the blue tape and they'll go to another stop sign. So they're doing a really nice job of using nonverbal cues to communicate with a population that has a lot of nonverbal people. And honestly, if, if you work for a museum facility and you don't know where to start, the best thing to do is to find your local autism community. You can do that by calling a developmental pediatrician's office. They often can direct you to all of the local resources. There's many national groups that have local chapters. So the best thing to do is to educate yourself in order to make those accommodations and ask that group what they need so that they can come and enjoy your facility. It's so interesting to hear you talk about this because I know how much parents love reading hours at libraries for children, children's museums, places where they can take their children and have a blast and get outside the home. And if you need that for children without the sensory needs, just imagine Mm -hmm. how much the parents of children on the spectrum extra need it, right? Right, right. I'm part of a number of Facebook groups and things, and daily, I mean daily, multiple times a day, I'm seeing people post about their young child and how they're unable to find anything social for them to do. And we love getting our our children together who have sensory issues, but still, again, our, our main fight is for inclusion and 
I think if we keep segregating our children with autism and ADHD and Down syndrome and all of these other special needs from mainstream children, then we're really doing a disservice to mainstream children and families because we have so much to teach them. They have so much to teach us. And as we're, you know, living in a world now that is so politically charged and there's this huge lack of compassion, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could get all of these kids to grow up together and realize that different is beautiful and to ensure that all of our our children could grow up in a world where compassion was king. Jackie Spanar is director of the Hunter House Victorian Museum in Norfolk, Virginia. Like museums, schools can sometimes be inaccessible for autistic learners. Radford University professor of special education Leslie Daniel wants to change that. And she has some techniques for designing more autism-friendly classrooms. Some of my favorite strategies, and I have a few go-to ones, uh, using visual supports uh, is probably one of my number ones, and that includes giving somebody a visual schedule, whether that be with pictures or just written words or a combination, to let somebody know, hey, here's what's happening through the day. Sometimes we think, oh, they get it now. The person with autism doesn't need the visual anymore. And they don't on an average day, perhaps. But then comes the out of the average day. You know, there's a snowstorm and they've uh, got a two hour delay to get to school. So when they get to school, there's no breakfast served. Well, they're used to getting to school and having breakfast, and people with autism often rely on routine. So a visual can help them see, okay, we got here late, so this is where we are on the schedule now. Um, Another favorite for me is using wait time. And wait time is when you ask a question or give a direction and then shut up. So if I say, pick up your pencil, usually teachers are like, come on, John, I said pick up your pencil. Where's your pencil? Don't you have a pencil? Well, the kid with autism is processing, and they're still on the first one, and now you've said it three more times, and they got to process it. They're not being noncompliant. Their brains are slowly processing what you said, and particularly if you've gotten louder or angrier. They've got a process, wait, there's another voice. It's a different voice. What does that mean? So I teach my students as a rule of thumb to wait for 15 seconds. Now, most teachers wait a little less than two seconds before giving redirect. So 15 seconds can seem like a long time. So I teach my kids to, my students, to count their Mississippis. A good rule of thumb I like to teach my students is to wait for 15 seconds counting their Mississippis, letting the person process. Now, some people, and, and what I teach people is to pay attention to when did they process. So it might really be that the person needed four seconds. Or, you know, I've worked with somebody um, who had a five-minute processing. Now, you can't wait five minutes in a classroom. You can wait 15 seconds, particularly if you're preparing all of the students, hey, we're going to wait until everybody's had time to think. Let's try it out. I just want to see what that feels like. Let's just do 10 seconds. Okay. So that's five. And that's 10. Wow. That's a big, big pause. 
It's actually nice, isn't it? It's nice to have a pause. It's nice. And and so going back to I try and teach my students um, not just that it's good for people with autism, but it is good for all kids because we don't give enough think time in general. You've also said one of your soapboxes is about friendships, how teachers can work to build relationships between neurotypical students and students with autism. Yes, and I don't like fake friendships. I don't want to say, oh, you have to be this person's friend today. But um, I like building opportunities for friendships to grow a little more naturally. But people with autism might need a little help to get to know other people. They don't necessarily um, know the rules of certain aspects of friendship. And the thing is, kids need to be with other kids to learn those rules. But somebody who doesn't know the rules doesn't have an easy time being with other kids. So it's they're caught in a catch-22 sometimes. So I like building groups. Um, I like building varied groups. Uh, in my own college classroom, I, you know, change up groupings on a very regular basis. Sometimes you should get to work with your friends or the people you're sitting nearest to. And sometimes, hey, let's let you get to know somebody else and learn a little bit about them because they won't necessarily be so um, other if you've been in a group and you've gotten to talk with them and you've learned their name. You know, so teachers can be mindful of helping people foster relationships. Isn't it a big problem if the children don't realize this other children is coping with autism and instead just feel bothered? Sure, absolutely. And sometimes with parent permission and child permission, I have, um, when I was in a K-12 classroom, said, okay, here's what's going on with this person, but only if I have parent and child permission. Right. Because, you know, you can't disclose somebody's disability. So um, if I can share more about that and then share also from the perspective of we all have differences. I wear glasses, for instance. I'm also very tall for a woman. So talking about how that impacts my day Um, and then and talking about what autism is. And there's some wonderful storybooks that that people can get and read with classes, again, with family permission and with and without the person with autism there. Sometimes you might want to have a more difficult conversation that the person would rather not be around for. But as much as possible, I like to celebrate. You know, autism comes with a lot of strengths. I'm super curious about the strengths. Yes. So autism, um, some people with autism have an incredible focus, um, an incredible eye for detail. I had one former student who could look down at the ground and um, see a four-leaf clover and pick it up. Yeah. He became incredibly popular on the trip to Monticello one year when (laughs) in about two hours he found nine four-leaf clovers. I've never once in my life found a four-leaf clover, though I have looked. (laughs) (laughs) He can just bend down and because he that's his eye for detail. He can see in a field of green clovers the one that is four-leaf. And I know a lot of people with autism who would not do without their autism. I am not somebody who wants to cure autism. I like people with autism, but I do want to help people with autism be comfortable in the life that they choose to live and to have the skills that they want. Well, Leslie Daniel, this is fascinating. Thank you for sharing with me and with good reason. Thank you for having me. 
Leslie Daniel is a professor of special education at Radford University and teaches in the Autism Studies Certificate Program. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. From Virginia Humanities, I'm Sarah McConnell. Temple Grandin was first diagnosed with autism when she was two. She was nonverbal until the age of four. Back then, many autistic children were institutionalized, but Temple Grandin says her mother worked tirelessly to teach her how to interact with the outside world. My mother had parties, and when my mother had a party, I had to greet each guest, and there was no calling them by the first names. It was, good evening, Mr. Wood, shake hands, learn how to shake hands, good evening, Mrs. Wood, and then I served the snacks. You see, everything socially, there's someone on the spectrum, has to learn like being in a play. Now, so many years and hurdles later, Grandin's autism has helped her become a national leader in the livestock industry. With Good Reason producer Allison Quantz traveled to the University of Virginia College at Wise to hear her speak. At this point, pretty much everyone has heard of autism. It's a developmental disorder characterized by certain behaviors, including a common inability to connect socially. And yet, Temple Grandin, who was diagnosed with autism at age two, connects with people and animals everywhere she goes. Uh, My name's Temple Grandin. I met Grandin at the University of Virginia College at Wise in far southwest Virginia. So small and far from major cities, at first glance, Wise is perhaps an unlikely stop for Grandin. And yet... You got lots of good beef cattle around here. Immediately, she connected. This is prime country for raising cows and calves. You ever gone out and just watched them? Grandin is not known simply for her autism. She's known because despite her autism, well, in fact, probably because of her autism, she's had a remarkably successful career in the livestock industry. She designed a humane slaughterhouse system that processes more than half of the beef eaten in America. That's a lot of hamburgers. I mean, I feel very strongly we got to give the cattle and the pigs we raise for food a life worth living. Grandin often talks about how her autism became an asset in the livestock industry. When I think about something, I get pictures flashing up in my mind. My mind kind of works like a um, language-based visual search engine. And you know, give me a keyword, and then I get pictures. This visual-based thinking, she argues, allows her to see what animals see, and in a way, think how they think. But as I said, Grandin doesn't just connect with animals. Everywhere she goes, people come to hear her unusual ability to share what it's like inside an autistic mind. Here she is speaking to the audience at Wise. Now I see movies in my imagination. Now I realized that my thinking was different when I asked people about church steeples. How did they come into your mind? And I was shocked to find out a lot of people see this generalized thing. See, in my mind, there is no vague generalized one. There's only specific ones. Grandin's message is that people with autism are different, not less. What we got to do is we got to really help them to be successful. Because you wouldn't even have computers if it wasn't for a little bit of autism. I mean, half of Silicon Valley probably has a little bit of autism. Einstein, who had no language until age three, maybe Steve Jobs, kind of a weird loner who brought snakes to school. Chris Scalia, English professor and chair of the lecture committee at UVA Wise, says there was an instant response from the community. As soon as we announced that she was coming, people started phoning our publicity department and wanting to get more information about it. People came from uh, 
Kentucky and Tennessee to hear what she had to say and to ask her questions directly. Scalia said that Grandin's talk was the most widely attended he had seen yet. Regan Stiltner is the mother of a young boy with Asperger's. Stiltner was one of many to give thanks for Grandin's presence. When my son got his diagnosis, I didn't have, have any light of hope. It was just the uh, brokenheartedness. And then once I saw her and saw the hurdles that she had gone over to reach what she has, it made me realize that he could do the same thing. Jimmy Brolson is a special education teacher. He came to UVA Wise to ask Grandin about what should be prioritized for autistic high schoolers. I mean, to hear her speak about it in such clear words um, kind of helps put the puzzle together, I guess you could say, as far as seeing things daily in the classroom that you may not understand or be, you might a problem you might be working through with a student. She's able to kind of clear that up. Grandin's not ready to give up her work with animals, but she feels a hefty responsibility to the autistic community. I think it's important that I have, continue to have a job that has nothing to do with, with autism because I get a lot of satisfaction in life through my work. I also get satisfaction, people come to me and they say, well, my kid went to college because of your book, or my kid you know, is getting and keeping a good job because of something I learned in one of my books. You know, that makes me happy, doing things that actually improve the world. Temple Grandin is one of the most important leaders in the livestock industry. She's worked with major companies, including Tyson, Smithfield, McDonald's, and Whole Foods. She's been a professor of animal sciences at Colorado State University for more than 20 years. And last, but certainly not least, she's a much sought-after expert on autism. For With a Good Reason, I'm Allison Quance. For decades, movies and books have shaped the way we think about what autistic people can and can't do. But most of the time, those representations have not been created by autistic people themselves. For example, Dustin Hoffman, who is not autistic, plays Raymond Babbitt, whose face shows little emotion and who could memorize vast amounts of information. Sally Dibbs, Dibbs, Sally, 4610092. How did you know my phone number? How'd you know that? She said, read the telephone book last night, Dib Sally, 4610192. He uh, remembers things, little things sometimes. Very clever, boys. I'll be right back. How'd you do that? How'd you do that? I don't know. You memorize the whole book? No. You start from the beginning? Yeah. How far did you get? G. G? G, God's sake, William Marshall, God's sake. You memorized to G? Yeah, G. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. G, half a G. But some argue that portrayals like this can narrow our understanding of autistic people's experiences and even reinforce harmful stereotypes. So what's changed in the 30 years since Rain Man? And what happens when autistic people write their own stories? Christopher Foss is a professor of English at the University of Mary Washington. He's looked into how autism is portrayed in literature and film. Chris, are there many movies where autism is a theme or the main character is autistic? Uh, I don't know if I'd say many, but there certainly are enough to, to teach a course on them. Um, uh, you know, the older films, usually you would tend to see autistic characters being relatively minor. 
characters simply to advance the plot or to uh, enable some sort of realization or movement for the major characters. For, for example, Elvis Presley's last major feature film, Change of Habit from 1969, features a, a young autistic child who's a patient in Elvis's inner city clinic where Mary Tyler Moore has been volunteering to work with him. And it is in their work with her that they kind of come together romantically. So that's really her purpose in the plot. And you also see in that movie a much older understanding of autism, the, the refrigerator mother theory where the child is autistic because of some sort of rejection on the part of the parent, the mother in particular. And uh, the way Elvis and Mary Tyler Moore treat her is to try to somehow get her to get all of the rage that's inside of her out. Uh, th that's what's caused her to kind of withdraw into her own world. Refrigerator mother being the cold mother who withdrew her love. Right, exactly. Now what do we think about autism? Uh, now it's a lot different. You can still find, I think, plenty of cultural scripts that are out there that still see autism in terms of a disease, something that needs to be cured, that, that you want the individual to somehow recover from or emerge from. But increasingly, there is a competing sort of storyline that emphasizes autism as human variation and difference, as neurodiversity. Uh, and the emphasis there becomes on society, learning more about autism and accepting autistic individuals for who they are um, and, and working on accommodation and adaptation um, rather than on an emphasis on some sort of pathological uh, cure. Starting with film, then, when did we first start to see autism depicted in film? I can think of Rain Man. And sure. when was that? Late 80s? Uh, yep, that's 89. Dustin Hoffman, Tom Cruise. Right, exactly. As the brothers Raymond Babbitt and Charlie Babbitt. Um, and that, that film, in many ways, was way ahead of its time. I mean, Rain Man features an autistic character as one of the ma two major characters, um, and he's really treated uh, with compassion and with a sense of humor so that you really feel like his humanity has been respected. At the same time, you can see his character subtly reinforcing the, the, the more widespread responses to disabled individuals. He's pretty much a perpetual child. Um, he's helpless and dependent. Ultimately, in the plot, you can also see him as, as simply being the vehicle for his brother's redemption. His brother's a self-centered jerk at the beginning, and it's having to go around with Raymond that teaches him something about himself, gets him to open up. Uh, so, you know, there are all these ways in which, um, and, and most of those characteristics, characteristics I'm talking about are coming from a disability studies scholar named Paul K. Longmore, who's worked on traits that we associate with the old telethon poster child. And so you can see Raymond's character as in many ways reinforcing the notion of the disabled individual or the autistic individual as someone who's kind of in need of our pity, in need of our charity. Um, and it's, it's when you move more into our own decade with films like, for example, Snowcake from 2006, which stars Alan Rickman and Sigourney Weaver. Sigourney Weaver is the autistic character in that movie. She is living independently on her own uh, in a home. She does have some help from her parents, um, but she's living independently on her own. She has a job. Um, she's a mother, in fact. That's uh, how the, the two characters have come together. But you see her as someone who definitely has her quirks, you know, a lot of the typical issues we've talked about for autistic individuals. But you also see that, that she's very smart. You understand why, despite some of the difficulties the Alan Rickman character 
comes to really appreciate his time with her. And for example, in, in this one particular scene where the two of them are playing Scrabble, I mean, you think about the difference between the interactions between Charlie and Raymond Babbitt, where, you know, Raymond is really, he does seem like in some ways as if he's, you know, he is this perpetual child figure. But in, in, in this scene, you see Sigourney Weaver definitely getting the best of Alan Rickman uh, in terms of, you know, this, you know, relatively challenging, I think anyway, um, board game. At the same time, you know, even even this sort of movie, I think, ultimately still is participating a little bit in some of the more problematic aspects of those earlier movies. Ultimately, I think, even though, you know, Sigourney Weaver and Alan Rickman are our two major characters, the movie, the script moves us to, to seeing that Alan Rickman is really the major character. It's his story. He's trying to deal with the loss of his own son, the fact that he's been involved in this accident with Sigourney Weaver's character's daughter. And ultimately, it's about his coming to terms with his own guilt, his own grief, and her character is kind of helping him to do that. So you still see that sort of vehicle of someone else's redemption going on, that that this other individual who's different from the rest of us somehow is able to get to us and tell us something we need to know about ourselves in a way that someone else hasn't. Another more recent movie uh, that I think uh, is doing a much better job, one would hope so, you know, almost a couple decades after Rain Man, is 2005's Mozart and the Whale. That's a movie that's actually based on on the real-life love story of two individuals with Asperger's syndrome, which is an autism spectrum diagnosis. Um, so as you might expect, the two major characters here uh, both have autism spectrum diagnoses. They are the two major characters. They are the love relationship. You know, they are the two love interests. Um, we get to, to see them interact with each other. They, you know, they, they both also are they're setting up house together. They're, they're living out in society, trying their best to, to hold down jobs. The fact that this is a, a whole feature film where you know, all of the major characters are autistic uh, is really, I think, a, a significant advance. So tell me about representations of autism in literature. Are these mostly parents writing about their children, teachers writing about their students? Uh, most of them are either parents, but actually autistic individuals themselves make up a very substantial. Uh, again, that's you know one of the old perceptions was an autistic individual, someone who's sitting rocking and can't really communicate, when in fact there are many highly articulate individuals with autism out there, and a number of them are telling their own stories. What I've seen in the literature is the shift that we've talked about away from uh, the sense of a story about recovering from or, or curing uh, the condition to embracing it as a part of one's self-concept or one's identity. You can take Temple Grandin, for example, is a professor uh, out in Colorado. She uh, The first book that she wrote uh, was in 1985, and it was t- entitled Emergence, labeled autistic. In that book, she's talking about emerging to some extent from the label of autism, uh, and she says that she's writing it in part to kind of disprove the sort of notion of once autistic, always autistic. Even just a decade later, in 1995, when you take a look at another one of her books, Thinking in Pictures, you can see that she's already moved away from that sort of sense of uh, the story of recovery or emergence, and instead she's focused on adaptation. And, and she says in that book, for example, if she could snap her fingers and be non-autistic, she wouldn't anymore because it's part of who she is. So that, I think, is a pretty dramatic shift 
in terms of how a lot of these writings are represent, representing autism. And you can take a look at Barbara LaSalle has a book called Finding Ben from 2003. She's a mother. It's about her son. Um, Don Prince Hughes has a book, 2004, I think, Songs of the Guerrilla Nation, 2007. John Elder Robeson, who's the brother of Augustan Burroughs, the, the Running with Scissors, uh, which was a popular book not too long ago, Look Me in the Eye. Um, and all of these accounts are very much ultimately getting to a place where they want to insist upon their autism spectrum diagnosis as essential to their self-concept and something that they can actually embrace and celebrate uh, rather than something that they wish they could somehow be cured of or emerge from. Um, and so, again, this the same sort of thing you see in film. You're starting to see a different trajectory, a more positive one that's allowing, I think, um, both uh, society in general and autistic individuals themselves in particular to have a much more healthy sort of understanding of, uh, of you know, how they should respond to, um, to their diagnoses. What have you noticed about the change in how autism is represented in literature and film over time? I do think that there is uh, increasingly more of an opportunity for stories, again, that are, that are focusing more on acceptance of autism as human variation and difference rather than a pathologizing of it where the emphasis is somehow on the autistic characters as somehow as, as definitely very different from the rest of us um, and potentially defective in some way in need of a cure. And I think that in both film and literature, you can see not that the older models aren't still there, but you can see increasingly uh, new possibilities for uh, autistic characters or autistic individuals being represented uh, in these two media um, uh, to, to be represented in, in, this, in this different, uh, I would say, more welcome, more positive light. If people are interested in reading one of these books, is there one in particular that you would highly recommend? It, it kind of depends on what you're looking for. I, I mean, I think that the, the Temple Grandin books are usually the best place to start. And that is Emergence and... Thinking in Pictures. She, she has a number of other more recent ones as well. If you're an animal lover, you might appreciate the Don Prince Hughes book because it's very much focused on her powerful connection with gorillas that she works with as part of her advanced degree work. Um, what if, is the name of that one again? Uh, Songs of the Gorilla Nation. The John Elder Robeson book that I mentioned if you're, you know, a rock and roll fan, for example, he's someone who's diagnosed later in life, as is Don Prince Hughes. And so he's spending a lot of his life trying to figure out why he seems so different or why people respond to him so differently from others. But he goes through a number of jobs. He designs uh, computer games. He ends up designing all kinds of special effects for Kiss and is going on tour with uh, the, the rock band Kiss. So that's you know, a narrative that it's it's not as much explicitly about giving you all kinds of information about autism, but it's, you know, it's it's a narrative that's focusing on, on John Elder Robeson, the individual, and, and his Asperger's syndrome diagnosis is part of who he is, but it doesn't have to be the whole book. And again, that's something that, that I find refreshing. Why did you start getting into a study of autism in literature and film? Why did you care? Well, First off, I, I I did grow up in a in a family with uh, two brothers and a father who uh, lived with chronic illnesses and as a consequence with multiple disabilities. 
But my interest in autism in particular really came about a number of years ago when a loved one received an autism spectrum diagnosis. By reading a lot of this literature, watching the films, I have been increasingly realizing the extent to which I personally have been pathologizing uh, some of the the uh, traits, especially negative traits, uh, uh, of my loved one. And there's this this sort of sense of always looking beyond the here and the now, the moment with the, the, the person right in front of you toward some moment in the future where through occupational therapy, sensory integration work, social skills work, speech therapy, any other sort of you know magical fairy godmother, suddenly you get to a point where you have someone who is you know more normal, uh, more fully human. And what I've been realizing is that I have been buying into that myself. And I think that I'm the one, to some extent, who needs to be cured of this. You know, I'm the one who's been locked inside the label of autism, uh, not my loved one. My loved one doesn't need to be cured. My loved one doesn't need to somehow get to a point in the future where he or she can somehow pass for normal. And I always joke, very few people who know me, I think, would apply the adjective normal <laughs> to me. So, um, you know, is, is that the goal anyway? I mean, really what my loved one needs is better services, better healthcare coverage to be able to, to have what all of us really want, the, the opportunity to, to live a, a full life and with, you know, as many opportunities for self-realization as any of the rest of us. It sounds like you think we're getting closer to that. I think so. There's still a lot of work to do. And one of the things that uh, when we were talking about the literature, you still see some of the older models. For example, maybe the most popular autism book right now is Jenny McCarthy's Louder Than Words, which also came out in 2007. The subtitle of that book is A Mother's Journey in Healing Autism. Autism is, is seen in that narrative as something that steals the soul of the autistic child that somehow, I think in many ways, somehow prevents one's full humanity from being realized. And so it's, it's very much seen as the, as the enemy. Uh, you know, certainly Jenny McCarthy, number one, has gone through a tr- tremendous amount of suffering, not to you know, minimize that in any way. She also has, uh, through the media blitzes, appearing on Oprah, Larry King, etc., more people have heard the word autism and have started to think about it because, because of her and her book. But at the same time, when you focus so much on the sense of we need to find a cure for autism instead of we need to, again, work on better services, look at education, look at health care, then I think that ultimately you're in real danger of sliding back into that older model. Uh, uh, defectiveness rather than as, you know, uh, simply human variation and difference. Chris Voss, thank you for sharing your insights on this with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you very much for having me here and for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. I really appreciate it. Christopher Foss is a professor of English Linguistics and Communication at the University of Mary Washington. He's also co-editor of the book disability in comic books and graphic narratives. Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. 
Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzyk, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Bill Foy of Virginia Tech, Ray Lenz and Todd Washburn of WHRV, and the Colorado Trust. Find us in your favorite podcast app or go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.